0: I'll be reading and preaching for you out of Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Hear now the word of God. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said, For the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. They returned to Galilee. To their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew. And became strong. Filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father. We thank you that we get to know who is the consolation of Israel, that we get to know who is the redemption of Jerusalem. We thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for waiting upon those who wait. Help us, Father, to take these words today that we may also have a contrite heart about our sins, that we may marvel at the wonder of Jesus Christ, and that we will continue here until your Son returns to serve and to wait in faithfulness and longing and in hopefulness according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This small segment of Scripture covers a lot of ground. It covers the presentation of the gospel, and it also covers the call of the gospel for those who rest in that gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes immediately deep, especially for our modern evangelical minds, by drawing our attention to the Levitical law and the requirements of purification. An area we tend not to like to get bogged down with. Who likes passages of Leviticus or dwells upon passages? <laughs> Mary raises her hand. Who puts passages of Leviticus in their living room in the fancy curse of letters? It's not a common thing except for people like Mary. Um, we're going to be looking forward to that now. She's going to put that down in the basement where we're going to have worship. She'll have Levitical passages all over the wall. It's something that typically when you hear people talk about difficulty of reading the scriptures on a regular basis, they tend to go to Leviticus as their excuse, like, oh, I was getting to Leviticus and I gave up. And I went into a life of rebellion, <laughs> which is odd considering what it's actually telling you and, and what the communication of Leviticus is actually is. But by going deep into Leviticus' requirement, we are reminded how deep in sin we are Then it captures our attention by this very peculiar and mysterious man named Simeon, who we know nothing about, we know not where he came from, and we know not what happened to him next. All we know about him is that the Holy Spirit told him that he would not see death until he saw Jesus. We know his song of thanksgiving and hope, and we know his words, prophetic words to Mary about what is to come. And even though we hardly know anything about Simeon, his short story tells us all that we need to know about who it is that embodies all the answers to everything, namely the hope of the condition of that deep sin that we're in. Then we have another seemingly even more obscure character with the prophetess Anna. But in three verses, Luke takes us... From the very core of the lonely longing of Israel to the very face of God. And then, if that was not enough in those two verses, there is the proclamation of the evangelical call really ultimately to every believer as she is the one who praises the Lord and then tells others about this redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In this short particular passage, there is a lot. In fact, as I was reading about it, R.C. Sproul even said of himself that he thinks that it's insane to try to make this small passage into one sermon, that it could be a series in of itself. And you hear me say that a lot, but this time it it really is packed full. But I want to highlight three particular things of this passage today. One, the very truth that Jesus became sin. That's a scary thing for me to even say. I only say that because Paul says that in Corinthians. To think that Jesus, the one who knew not sin, as Paul says, actually became sin. A sin substitute, even for us. Secondly, Jesus becomes poor. He becomes poor because we are poor. And not just poor in things, but he goes to the depths of what it means and what everything about being poor ultimately means, which is our complete emptiness that we have in a state of sin apart from God. And then lastly, Jesus waits on those who wait. We see here that we, and that is from the Old Testament, that it is the Lord who will wait upon the people who wait upon him. And it's a bit of a cycle. You think, well, who's waiting first? <laughs> well, of course, the Lord waiting on us causes us to wait. And in our faith and our endurance in waiting on him, he continues to bless us with the fulfillment of his promises. Now, first of all, let us go with the law of Moses. Here we see, as they go into Leviticus, that we're seeing the laws of purification. Now, when you read about the laws of purification in Leviticus, it's, it seems almost out of control. All of the things that they have to try to do to stay clean. We see that when we go through the book of Leviticus, that it's related to blood very clearly. It's related to death, sickness, and very clearly that it's highlighting that unclean, unclean, that people is unclean. It's impossible, almost. It is, ultimately, if you try to live out that Levitical law, it is impossible for us to be able to run from uncleanliness, that somewhere we're going to encounter the reality that we are unclean. There's this harsh contrast of God's holiness in a very large magnification of our nastiness. It is graphic. It is physical. It's uncomfortable. It's real, very real, but it's also tremendously symbolic because it's a symbolic representation of the amenitude or normative of our state of sin. It's a profuse reminder of all the all encompassing nature of sin and death. Now, if we can think of anything positive that we can get out of our last few years of dealing with COVID. There is almost a parody display in the last three years of how the world has dealt with COVID, COVID that is very similar to what we see in Leviticus. Think about it, if you would, that when, when COVID hit, it was almost at first we like, well, how are we going to keep this from affecting us? And then we had all of these things that we were told that we needed to do. You go into any kind of bathroom. I still have these stickers at work where you go in and it tells you how to wash your hands. And how long to wash your hands. And what temperature to wash your hands. And what kind of soap to have. And then you need to have a mask. You need to have a certain kind of distance between you and everyone else. And where you can go. And even to this day, every day when I go in on Friday, I have to look at a chart to see what... CDC status our particular community is in Russell County so I can tell people whether at work they have to wear a mask we're still doing that because of the fear of catching this COVID this fear of of death and and if you look at the ridiculousness of it now I'm not saying that there's not some effective element of that but it's I mean I think just about from whatever area you come from it's it's crazy it's out of control it's impossible. You, you can't go anywhere. And, you, and even during the height of it, when people were enclosed in their home and they didn't meet anybody, they'd still get it and they would die. It is a, a symbol even for us of what it's like in our condition of sin. It's impossible for us to do anything to keep from being unclean. That's the kind of situation that we're in as we enter into the New Testament, as we enter into the birth of Christ, that we are unclean and there is no hope for us. And we can take it even to another level that even I think that's beyond parody, but just the typical nature of Satan and how he does things, that it is actually, in a way, an inversion, a secularistic um, idolatrous um, religion now. That there is not just a matter of being away from the sickness, but is a virtue element to it. That there you're not holy unless you actually fulfill these things. It's interesting how Satan uses those things. And, it, and it's a very good highlight for us to see that whenever Satan does that, he's just inverting the scenario of what we have in the scriptures. That COVID is almost... A religion, in of itself, of this promotion of man being able to accomplish some kind of hopefulness to live, and we see how that was supposedly. When if you believe one numbers, a lot of everybody died, <laughs> and people are still dying. There is no hope in that particular religion, and there is no hope for us on being able to provide purification for ourselves. And then here we enter in. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Immediately inside of Leviticus, we have the gospel presentation that the things that God is actually commanding them to do is not to just let them know that they cannot be clean, but it is to show the very hope of their uncleanliness, that what they're actually doing, the commands and the practice and the rituals that they have to fulfill is pointing to the necessity of redemption, that it is impossible for them to be able to get clean. Turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 12, and which is the shortest chapter in Leviticus, and which is where this particular part of the story is focusing. In verse 1 of Leviticus 12, it says, "...the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days." As at the time of her menstruation, she shall become unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. I am not about to go into <laughs> trying to figure out, even, even for most commentators, I don't even really understand why there's a distinction of timing between the women and the men. But here in this circumstance, we can see that God is using all of these things to show this, this bloody circumstance that we're in. Because of sin. And even here it points out that she cannot come into the sanctuary because of her condition. But in verse 6 it says, When the days of her purifying are complete, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears the child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Leviticus is full of hope and full of the gospel, is pointing in shadows. And for us, especially, being so far removed from this particular time in the dispensation of the Lord, that we now look at this, and it seems all very confusing, but we can tell that through the symbols of blood and just the messiness of it all is that we're doomed and that God is holy and that we cannot be near God apart from some kind of sacrifice apart from some kind of substitute. And then that's what makes it so amazing that if we were deep in the law of Moses and we're thinking about what's going on in Leviticus, if we're like Mary that likes Leviticus and we're really into that particular book and we understand that, that when we get to this particular part of Luke, we understand how hopeful these reminders are. Because it is a mess. You know, that's a term that is used a lot. I know in conversations that I've had just lately with different circumstances, with people getting into trouble or just having all kinds of just problems in their life, I get to the point where I, I can't even figure out what to say. And the only thing I can say is, man, that's just, that's just a mess. And we have those circumstances come into our life and we, we see how the it's all scrambled up but really ultimately it's symbolic of our whole condition we are truly a mess a bloody bloody mess and and even in the english use of that word of bloody mess it's nasty but look at hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil, the deliverer of all those who fear of death, excuse me, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The pair of dark turtle doves and two young pigeons is not enough. The priest is not enough. That we need another greater high priest a greater sacrifice to be able to pay for this mess that we are in. And in Hebrews, we are shown that Jesus took on flesh and blood. He got bloody. He got into the bloody mess for us. And what they are doing here which is hoping in a promise to come, is not just hoping in the promise to come, but it is the fulfilling of the promise to come because now Mm -hmm. the greater sacrifice is being presented in the temple along with the shadows at the same time with these pair of turtle doves or young pigeons. This is where Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5.21, as Paul says, is made To be sin. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I would encourage you to read Leviticus, to look at the mess that we're in, the impossible circumstances that we're in, and we see here that now the fulfillment of everything that you see that has to do with the Redemptive sacrifice is now in the temple being presented. But then we see that he goes to the next level, that it's not the lamb that's actually presented. He is the lamb. He is the rich lamb that is being presented. And that for us, he has become poor. He's redeeming both by being the lamb, but also having the birds who were for those who were ultimately so poor they could not afford a lamb. He's accomplishing it all for us at one time. In Psalm 51, in verse 14, shows us what the ultimate state of being poor is pointing to when David says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. We see here David understanding that blood guiltiness that he has in his own sin and how he committed sin in multiple ways, in his position, but also in his just general physical um, um, weakness. And here he goes before the Lord, understanding on one hand his blood guiltiness, but understanding God's righteousness. And he knows that even the burnt offerings and the sacrifice is not enough, but he has to be completely poor, completely broken. And contrite the word contrite is interesting you know we, we tend to sometimes use the word trite it's a, a very trite song or trite circumstance we see something small but the word trite means rub which ultimately means to break down and it means to be broken it means to be to just annihilated it means to be with brokenness in a in a, in a complete worn out and weary way to be to be done to be truly completely beaten up and pummeled into powder is what that really ultimately means that our heart that our place of who we are we are so poor we are so broken we are so hopeless in of ourselves. and we know that when we get to that particular point we're at our best and blessed place second corinthians chapter 8 verses 8 through 9 it says i say this Not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now the context of that, when Paul gives that instruction, and he is encouraging them to consider the genuineness of their love, is when it has to do with brothers giving to one another in the church. But he's showing that Jesus did physically become poor, but he's ultimately becoming this greater poorness so that we can become this greater richness. So when we come to this particular circumstance, just in these few verses, when we are reminded of Leviticus, when we are reminding of our poverty, and we see that Jesus is right in the middle of it, and he has become all those things. Jesus became sin. Jesus became poor. That would be enough to just completely put us in a place of just being pummeled to a powder. But then, in this mastery way that God always does, he introduces us to Simeon. Simeon is an interesting character. We, again, we know nothing about him. But he tells us all we need to know. It reminds me of when Adam and I, we were on a work trip, and I've told this story before, but there's some new faces in here, so I feel confident enough to tell it again, about our friend, Lieutenant. I don't know Lieutenant Why. He didn't give us his full name, but we were in that time of, of COVID. We were standing at a Chinese restaurant that normally had a buffet. You couldn't go in. They had this big piece of plastic up because it was safer for us to be in this really tight spot with a bunch of people waiting for them to go get our food and then to sign the same pen over and over again when we gave them our debit card or credit card it's really ridiculous <laughs> the scenario that we were in we're standing there waiting for our chinese food and there's this big guy that has a, a cane in his behind him like a sword <laughs> you know he pull the cane out and beat you with it and he says something to us something nice. I can't remember how the beginning of it was. And he gave, he gave me a $2 bill. And he says something about, you seem like nice guys. And we're talking. And I, I somehow or another, I asked him his name. And and I've had different encounters with people. And I try to find ways to have conversation that might lead to some kind of conversation about Christ. And, and I didn't know where this was going to go. He looked kind of peculiar and kind of odd. Um, and... I said, what is your name? And he said, Lieutenant. And I said, Lieutenant what? And he said, Lieutenant. And I said, okay, Lieutenant. Do you believe in God? He's like, certainly. He's the one who protects me from the bullets because, you know, he's a lieutenant. You know, he's in, he's in battle. And I'm like, okay, that's an interesting guy. And, and I, I thought, you know, I'm going to go a little deeper than this. I'm not just going to ask him if he believes in God. I said, do you know who Jesus is? You know, and I'm thinking I'm doing good. I'm the one who's the evangelical Um, high ground here because I'm asking who is Jesus you know I'm going to make him you know work a little harder about whether he believes in God And he says Jesus is the New Testament the Old Testament revealed and I was I mean I was dumbfounded I don't know if Adam saw my face because we're all facing the same piece of plastic at the same time but I was just like whoa (laughs) that's some answer The New Testament. The Old Testament revealed. No one's ever said anything to me like that before. And inside of that, he says it all. (laughs) He is the old he is the New Testament. The Old Testament revealed. What he just expounded upon in that one sentence said everything. And then we've never spoken to him again. And then, you know, he just kind of goes away and and that's it. You know, we saw, I saw him one time, when I went, because we went back to that Chinese restaurant a lot. So I'm just walking off in the distance. But I have no idea who he is, what he's doing. But that one answer was enough, and it stuck with me. That's what we have with Simeon here, is that we don't know a whole lot, but we have everything that we need to know. We know that he was righteous and devout, and that he was waiting on the consolation of Israel. He was waiting on the hope of everything that we see in the Old Testament. He was waiting for it to be revealed. Because the Holy Spirit was upon him and revealed to him that he would get this great privilege of being able to stay alive until the time he saw the Lord's Christ. That it's all really mattered. That, he, that That's all he needed was to see Christ and then he could go on in life. And sure enough, he gets to see that, that he is in the temple. He is a prophet in the temple that gets to see the Lord's Christ. And then we see this wonderful song that he sings. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He got everything he needed. He tells us everything that we need to know that this is Jesus, that this is the Christ, that this is the New Testament, the Old Testament revealed, that everything promised, that the consolation of Israel is now here and it is in Jesus Christ. He is a witness to that to this day. He is a witness to that and he is proclaiming that. And we sing along with him that because now that we're on this side of not just the incarnation and not just the crucifixion and not just the resurrection, but the ascension of Jesus Christ, we now can sing this song that we see Jesus Christ. And then his father and his mother marveled. Do you marvel at this knowledge of Jesus Christ? We see this wondrous story here, and we hear it year after year. And it was in an introduction to them, and it would have been amazing at that time to be in the temple. I'm not saying that it's not. But do you see the depths of our sin and our defilement and the mess that we're in? And then do you see how great it is that we get to see the Lord's Christ. Joseph and Mary marveled, but Simeon went further. He blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That even though Simeon's waiting was complete, and that Simeon, he says, I can check out now. I was told that I was going to live until I saw the Lord's Christ. He tells Mary, there is more to see. You will see that your son will be for the fall and the rise of many. That he will be a sign that is opposed And then even with these parentheses, kind of honing in onto Mary, saying that this will pierce even your own soul. And because we have the fullness of the gospel, we know what that means, that she will actually not only take this child to the temple, but will see him be the, the temple torn down as he is crucified on the cross. She has to wait for that to occur. And it tells us a nature of what the gospel is. Still in this life that even though we have the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, there is still this work to be done. There is still this battle to be fought. And there will still be this display that will even pierce through our own souls. And then in these last three verses... We have this introduction of another, what is seemingly to be obscure, but maybe even has a bigger punch packed into it with the prophetess of Anna. She has also been waiting for a long time also. We see that as Simeon was waiting, she's been waiting along. We don't know who's older here. We kind of assume that Simeon is really old. We don't know which one is older, but they've been waiting on the Lord. We have this prophetess Anna, who is the daughter of Phineul, of the tribe of Asher. Now, right there, just in that description about her, tells us a lot. One, her name is Anna. Now, Anna is a Greek version of the name, what, in Jewish terms? Hannah. So we are reminded of Hannah. Who was Hannah? Especially guys that are part of the study that we've been a part of. Anybody know who Hannah was? The The mother of Samuel. Now, did she have a picturesque birth situation when it came to Samuel? No, she was barren. And she had a contender wife, a very uncomfortable situation. And she longed and prayed that the Lord would give her a son. Now, Samuel, we see that even then we have that Samuel, we know that it, the story goes up and down from there. He is a prophet. But then he is the one who anoints Saul, and we see all of this pain and suffering continuing to go. But there was this hopefulness in the birth of Samuel. Then we see the daughter of Fenuel. Don't know anything about Fenuel other than his name. And his name means the face of God. Now, where is Anna right now? She's standing before the face of God who was of the tribe of Asher. Now Asher was one of the ten lost tribes of Israel. Asher was the son of Leah. Who is Leah? Right? Was, he, was she the primary wife? <laughs> no, she was the second wife. Now, she got to have a lot of children, but by the time Asher came, she was in a scenario where she was no longer producing children, but Asher's name means happy. Now, in both the situation with Leah and in the situation of Hannah, they're very messy circumstances. They are circumstances that are difficult for parents to teach their children. When we go through that, it's always the children are like, what? What? What is going on here? These multiple wives, these letting their maidservants sleep with their husbands. This is is a a mess. It's like the book of Hosea. These are not meant to be instructive of how to raise a family. It's a nightmare. It's like our circumstances that we have in the book of Leviticus. We are a complete mess just in that one verse and thinking about Anna thinking about the tribe of Asher knowing that the tribe of Asher is a lost tribe of Israel that that there's so much brokenness already being displayed and then we see that personally she was advanced in years having lived with her husband 7 years from when she was a virgin, and then was a widow until she was 84. So what we gather from that, doing the math, that maybe she was around maybe 14 when she got married, she only had seven years of being married, and then she spent the last 63 years or so as a widow. And if we know anything about what the the description of the Scriptures show us, is that this is a very painful situation. She had a short marriage. She's been lonely. She would have every good reason to feel bitter and to feel broken, to feel contrite, to feel empty. In Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it talks about the description of Israel the terms that are used. How lonely sits the city that was full of people, How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the province has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Anna, in so many respects, is like the condition of Israel, like the condition of God's people. They are completely without, they are completely poor, they're completely shamed. And apart from what she is waiting on, she is completely hopeless. But, it says that she did not depart from the temple Worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She knew enough about her circumstance and knew enough about who God is and knew enough about the circumstance of Jerusalem that she found herself always in the temple. She found herself as close as she could be to God. Now, I want to just stop there. as just a moment when we think about her. She is being celebrated here, and we see that this is a heroic moment for Anna. We all see this in a very positive light. She is in the temple. We look at, oh, what great devotion she has, worshiping with fasting, prayer, and night and day. Let's think about the temple now. The temple is the representation of God being with his people, but on the ground... In real life terms for her, what kind of situation do we have in the temple? What did Jesus find when he came to the temple? Was it a positive atmosphere? Was he pleased with what he saw at the temple? He did not. I think this is a very good lesson for us when we consider the church, when we consider that what the church is now in light of where did the temple go where well, the temple has been destroyed, what does the New Testament teach us is now the temple. It's the body of Christ. Well, who is the body of Christ? The church. So if we look at Anna, we make it think of her and we look at her devotion and her, her striving to be near the Lord, we too should understand as we are those who are continuing to wait, that we should try to find ourselves as close as we can to where God resides. And his scripture and his word teaches us that it is with his people. Are they pleasant people to look at all the time? They are not. Because there's something greater that we're hoping in. She was hoping in something greater. She was hoping in the Lord. She was with fasting and prayer waiting day and night on the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. We know that Jesus came to fulfill these people's weight. It says in Isaiah 61.1, It says, the spirit of the Lord Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In some presentation of the gospel, we see that these are the first words that Jesus' ministry begins with, others being that his words are to repent and to believe. But we also see in Second Corinthians, verse, chapter five of verse 16, a fuller description of what I've already given you when we see that Jesus was made into sin." It says, "From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we do see that Paul is describing for us that in light of this Jesus becoming sin, that here we see Jesus going to the poverty of who we are as God's people, left in our sin, left in our bloodiness, left in our uncleanliness, that Jesus comes and takes on that uncleanliness for us, that he actually becomes that uncleanliness for us so that we might be reconciled to him. I don't know how certain this is, but some people say that even if you do the numbers here, that the representation of her seven years of marriage and then the, the fact that she was 84 is showing this completion now. That her waiting brought her to a place of completion. Seven times 12, if you think about the tribes of Israel, equals 84. That the number 84 in the Jewish mind is complete. That her waiting was complete when she saw the face of God before her. That Jesus took on all of her shame and all of her weakness and brought it all to a close. And just as we see that the whole point of Christ's coming was that the old would be passed away, that the new would come, and that we would be reconciled, we see that Paul is admonishing us to be about the ministry of reconciliation. The interesting thing about this 84-year-old woman, she wasn't checking out. She wasn't done. It says that she began to give thanks to God and to speak to, of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. She begins to evangelize. She saw the face of God. She saw who the answer was. The thing that she was waiting on is now right before her, so she took it and she began to continue a ministry of reconciliation. That is what Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Over and over again, we see the word reconciled, reconciled, reconciliation, the message of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. We are to be about the ministry of reconciliation. We are to be about the ministry of consolation. We are to be about the ministry of the redemption of Jerusalem. We see who Jesus is. Old things are passed away. The calling before us is to preach the gospel. So again, I ask you, do you long and wait with weariness about your sin? Do you see the fullness of your sin? You should, as a Christian, as you go further, see the depths of it even more and more. You should get to a place in your life where you're like, I can just see how messy it is. It's like going deeper into the book of Leviticus over and over again. You see just how defiled you are. But as you go into that great depth of who we are, we should also be brought to this great place of marveling. Do you marvel? Maybe if you do not marvel, if you find yourself to be cold and to find yourself to be sterile, it's usually one of two things going on. You've given in to the lies of Satan of hopelessness. You've allowed your circumstance to put you in a place of full bitterness. Or you really don't understand the depths of how sinful you are. That is why in many cases, many say that those who have been victimized, it's very often difficult for them to be ministered to because they define themselves fully as a victim. They can no longer see themselves as being the perpetrator. And so therefore they can no longer be in a place of contriteness to be able to receive that grace in fullness they can't be empty anymore because they have defined themselves of just being a victim we have to be broken down so that we can marvel we have to be given that continuation in our life as we look back at the confession of our faith we have to keep experiencing that in different ways so that we can experience his grace even more fully so do you wait Are you willing to continue to wait? We don't have to wait like Simeon. We don't have to wait like Anna. In many respects, we have to wait more like Mary. But as we see God continuing to fulfill his calling upon this earth through the power of his son, through the furthering of his kingdom, there will be moments where we will see that some will fall and some will rise up. That the sign of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of that sign, is going to be opposed. And that there will be moments that the ministry of Jesus Christ will pierce our own soul. But for the purpose that many hearts might be revealed. That more may receive the conquering of the king. That is the calling that we have as we wait. And do we wait where he resides? Will we follow the lead of Anna by being as close to God as we can, to follow the lead of Simeon by holding tightly to his word. That is the calling we have into the new year. It is to wait upon the Lord, but to wait where he resides, because we have now seen the fulfillment, the consolation, the redemption. We have seen the face of God in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father,